Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, the Season 7 finale, will look at Jacob Kettler. Kettler was a Duke of German origin. He ruled the Duchy of Courland and Semigalia, which was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth during his life, and sat on the Baltic Sea in the region of Livonia, which today is part of Latvia. If that all wasn't weird enough, Kettler decided that in order to modernize his duchy's economy, he should emulate the major powers of Western Europe by creating overseas colonies. As always, maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 10, Jacob Kettler. And this is The Almost Forgotten. Jacob Kettler was born in 1610 in what is today northern Latvia. His father, Wilhelm, was the son of a duke. Wilhelm and his brother, Friedrich, shared the job of ruling the duchy, but Wilhelm fled in 1617 after having issues with the noble families he ruled. Jacob's mother, Sophia, was the daughter of the Duke of Prussia and died due to complications during his birth. Jacob was raised in Prussia with her family, and he didn't return to Latvia until he was 14. At the time, Europe was in the throes of the Thirty Years' War. By the middle of the 17th century, the Dutch Republic had secured independence. Spoiler for season four if you haven't listened. Bourbon France began its rise under Louis XIII and Cardinal Richelieu, and saw Louis XIV step on stage. The Holy Roman Empire in Spain remained powerful, but Habsburg dominance was beginning to find a true rival. Sweden emerged as a global power, Denmark still ruled over Norway, and England was entering a rebellion and civil war which resulted in the Commonwealth period. Speaking of Commonwealths, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth ruled much of Eastern Europe, but had been weakened by a Swedish invasion from the north. Russia was a large and growing power in the east, and in the south of Europe, Italy was divided, with Spain ruling over the two Sicilies, Venice still holding some power in the northeast, and a myriad of city-states dividing up the rest of the northern part. To their south and east, the Ottoman Empire dominated. After some setbacks early in the century, they expanded once again and got as far as the gates of Vienna by 1683. They ruled much of North Africa, although the Moroccan Empire thrived in the west and had conquered lands south of the Sahara. Further south, the Kingdom of Congo ruled land on the central west coast. To its south lay Ndongo with its powerful queen Nzinga, season 5, episode 10, while the empire of Mutapa ruled the southeastern lands. All of these states were dealing with European colonists, mostly the Portuguese. To the east of Ottoman lands was the powerful Safavid Empire, 
and to their east, the Mughals ruled over most of the Indian subcontinent. In China, the Ming Dynasty fell, and after a relatively brief period of turmoil, was replaced by the Qing Dynasty, and Khanate still ruled territory to their west and north. To China's south, the Ayutthaya Kingdom ruled over Thailand, the reformed Tuangu Kingdom ruled over Burma, while the European colonists had asserted control over swaths of the Southeast Asian islands. And speaking of European colonists asserting control, on the other side of the Pacific, the story was one of conquest. The English were setting up along the eastern seaboard, with the Swedes along the Hudson River, and the French in Canada. The Spanish held most of the lands from Mexico south, although the Portuguese and the Dutch controlled the east coast of Brazil. And of course, in all of those places, people had already lived there. But, despite the presence of native populations who would soon suffer at the hands of European powers, it was a time of growing colonial empires. The world was being reshaped by these colonial powers of Spain, Portugal, the Dutch Republic, England, France, Sweden, and of course, Courland. Courland, or more specifically, the Duchy of Courland and Semigalia, which today make up the western regions of Latvia, was, in the middle of the 17th century, a duchy, obviously. It was a vassal state to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but, like another Polish duchy at the time, Prussia, it was somewhat of an independent fiefdom. Think of it almost as a subordinate kingdom, able to act on its own in many ways, but still very much a subordinate. Despite the nominal independence, it was not large or particularly powerful. It was less than 30,000 square miles in total, smaller than South Carolina, smaller than Panama, and it probably held less than 500,000 people, maybe closer to just two or 300,000. Courland itself had started out as a colony, when the Teutonic Order entered on crusade to convert the people of the Baltics. Eventually, an offshoot group of these crusaders, the Livonian Order, ruled over parts of this territory. Other small polities ruled as well in what became an economically prosperous but politically divided entity called the Livonian Commonwealth, mostly led by German adventurers and their descendants. Being economically prosperous but politically divided wasn't great considering the Tsar of Russia was right next door. Not that the other neighbors were shrinking violets either. The Livonians decided discretion was the better part of valor, or something like that, and ended up seeking protection from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In 1562, they signed a treaty which turned much of the land into an inheritable duchy but a vassal state to the Polish kingdom. Gotthard Kettler, Jacob's grandfather and the last leader of the Livonian Order Knights, became the duke of what is now Courland and Semigalia. At the time, his rank was equal to that of the Duke of Prussia, another nominally independent German-dominated vassal territory of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. While there were a significant number of native Livonians still in the region, the Germanic leaders of the Livonian order were given the choice roles. According to Marita Yakovieva, writing for the National Archives of Latvia, 
Quote, the ruling position in the state was maintained by the descendants of the former Livonian order knights and vassals who formed the privileged class of landed gentry, as well as by the more affluent classes of city residents. Meanwhile, the Latvian peasants were increasingly subjected to serfdom, unquote. Perhaps because the leaders were somewhat outsiders who didn't necessarily have significant public support, and also had no historical basis for a pecking order between them, there was constant infighting amongst them. The internal division is what sent Jacob's father Wilhelm packing. Wilhelm was given Cortland, while his brother Friedrich was given Semigalia as their inheritances. But Wilhelm didn't get along with his vassals, and when the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth sided with them, Wilhelm left for Pomerania. His brother Friedrich became sole duke, and I assume he gave those vassals whatever it is his brother wouldn't. With no heir of his own, when his brother Wilhelm's 14-year-old son Jacob returned from Berlin, Friedrich welcomed his nephew back. It seems like their relationship was okay, as Friedrich got the Commonwealth to recognize Jacob as his heir in 1633. It was around this time that Jacob gathered an army, a small one, to go help the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Russia had invaded in order to capture the city of Smolensk, which the Poles had taken a couple decades earlier. I'm not sure how much Jacob and his 300 men made a difference in the war, but it was concluded in 1634 with a treaty keeping Smolensk in the hands of the King of Poland. With that war over and his succession to the duchy secured, later that same year, the now 24-year-old Jacob left the duchy to travel and become more worldly. He went to France, as one does, and the Dutch Republic, which was in its golden age, and was arguably the most scientifically and culturally advanced country in Europe. It was also a massive maritime power, and it held this power by the size of its fleet and the trade that this fleet produced. He spent time in Zealand studying the art of shipbuilding, learning all about the merchant fleets and the mercantilist policies that were dominant in Western Europe at the time. This had significant influence on the young prince. He returned home around 1636 and was named the co-ruler of the duchy in 1638. In 1642, his uncle died, and Jacob became the duke. Soon after, he established a free trade agreement with France, perhaps leveraging some contacts he made when he had visited the kingdom a few years earlier. In 1645, he married the sister of the Duke of Brandenburg, Louise Charlotte, who was seven years younger than him. They would end up having nine children together. The duke, inheriting the position at age 32, spent the early part of his reign working to increase the trade of his duchy. He began building up a naval fleet even before his uncle died, firmly believing it was through naval power that Corland would become a strong nation. He started by building up the coastal town of Windau, now called Vonspuls in Latvian, as his main harbor. It was also a Hanseatic port, but Jacob improved and grew the shipyards there, beginning his dream of turning Corland into a maritime power. He brought in shipwrights from Lübeck, which was the leading city of the Hanseatic League and a major German port on a river island just off the Baltic Sea. In fact, Lübeck was a major embarkation point for centuries for those going to fight in Livonia, so it's possible 
that Jacob's ancestors left from Lubeck. Another place he hired shipbuilders from was, of course, the Dutch Republic, whose sailing expertise was well known. There is a surviving ledger from 1652 which shows 21 Dutch shipbuilders working under a Dutch master builder for him. It wasn't just the shipbuilders who were foreign, although, let's be clear, much of the actual labor was local. The sailors themselves were mostly hired from outside of Courland. Jacovieva writes, quote, The captains of the Duke's ships and the leaders of his expeditions were mainly foreigners. Likewise, most of the soldiers and sailors were also recruited abroad. In Denmark, Germany, Holland, and Great Britain, there were almost no Latvians at all on Jacob's ships, unquote. Part of the reason for the lack of locals was the serfdom under which the Livonian order and the Kettler dukes had kept the people. He didn't want them leaving to settle some faraway land. He needed them to work the fields in Courland. Besides reminding us of the serfdom, this probably is a good indication of Courland's population density compared to parts of Western Europe. If there were more Latvians around, he might have been forced to employ them as sailors. Although it is worth noting, as Jakovieva points out, those Corlanders living on the coast were also accomplished fishermen and sailors, and may have been a fine addition to his fleet. Regardless of who he employed, in Jacob's mind, trade was crucial to the health of his duchy. He had explored Western Europe, and something there clicked. Clearly not the fact that feudalism had pretty much ended in much of the Dutch Republic and had faded significantly in France didn't leave an impression on him, but the money they were making through trade sure did. And why wouldn't it? The Dutch Republic had become one of the lights of Europe, and it was all through trade, and beating up the Habsburgs, but mostly it was trade. The way European states expanded their trade networks at the time was to set up a trading hub in a faraway land, a place they could get expensive items and bring them back to exchange them for goods and services. In other words, a colony. And Jacob thought, like everyone else, that this was a really good idea. So he worked to do just that. He probably began coming up with this while in the Dutch Republic, apparently spending significant time in Zealand and meeting sailors and merchants returning from the Caribbean. According to Karen Jacobson Lamanis in her article Baltz in the Caribbean, in which she uses his English name James, quote, the Duke of Courland was determined to gain Tobago, a small Caribbean island in the Lesser Antilles. His interest in Tobago dates from his early years spent in the United Provinces, where he studied shipbuilding and economics at the University of Rostock from 1634 to 1636. James spent much of his time in Zealand where the Dutch Tobago colonists originated, and he almost certainly heard details of their failure in Tobago, unquote. Tobago had been colonized several times before, but each attempt failed. The Spanish ignored the island because it didn't have gold or grazing land. Not that they wanted anyone else to have it. The Dutch tried to settle it a few times, as did the English. But each time they were driven off by disease, or the native Caribs, or the Spanish, or the Spanish getting the native Caribs to attack. Anyway, in 1639, England was the place that had attempted the last few times, so they claimed sovereignty over the island. Jacob, who happened to be a godson of the no longer living King James I, appealed to his godbrother, King Charles I of England, 
Charles probably thought Tobago was a boondoggle, but would rather have an ally occupy it than the Dutch or the Spanish. So he gave Jacob a grant to go ahead and set up a colony. The first attempt to colonize the island did not go well. A little over 200 settlers came, but they were soon driven out by the indigenous people who, you know, already lived there. There is some evidence that not only were the colonists inexperienced and unprepared, but they may have actually been criminals from Corland. If this was the case, it was probably to save money. Rather than pay free men to do this, send in a chain gang to gather the harvest and see how it goes. Well, clearly, it didn't go well. The Corland nobility, which was a powerful force in the duchy, had sent Jacob's father packing, and they weren't thrilled with this venture. They appealed to the king of Poland for a new duke, but they were denied. This didn't slow Jacob down, though, and he seems to have sent another expedition in 1643, consisting of about 300 Zealanders, led by a captain formerly employed by the Dutch West India Company. This too failed, again pushed out by the native inhabitants of Tobago. There were several indigenous groups that made Tobago their home, or at least used it as a stopover point as they traveled from island to island. The Arawak and the Caribs sailed across the Lower Caribbean and used Tobago as a place to gather food and water. A tribe of Carib may have called Tobago a permanent home, and all of these groups likely came into conflict with each other. The Europeans just added another set of people to the conflict, but unlike the natives, if they were in trouble, they couldn't grab a few hundred extra guys from a nearby island to help settle a fight. With those failures, Jacob might have thought, hey, Corland doesn't have enough people in it to exploit all the land in Corland. Maybe I shouldn't send people to the other side of the world. But that wasn't Jacob. It took him some time, but in the 1650s, Corland actually really started to get going at the whole colony thing. Perhaps turning his attention thanks to the failures in the Caribbean, Jacob also targeted West Africa, where the Dutch and the Portuguese already held coastal cities. According to Jacob Leva, quote, In 1651, representatives sent by the Duke succeeded in obtaining from local chiefs some territories on the estuary of the River Gambia. St. Andrew's Island, now known as Kunta Kinte Island, about 30 kilometers inland from the river mouth on the Atlantic Ocean, the village of Gillifrey on the right bank of the river opposite St. Andrew's Island, and Bayona, present-day Banjul, the capital of the Gambia, unquote. It seems that these were obtained by purchasing them from the local kingdom of Combo. The locals at this point had probably encountered Europeans enough that they saw the value of the trade if they could contain it, and this seemed like a good way to go about it. On these sites, the Corlanders built trading posts and forts. They probably raised their naval flag there, which was apparently a black crab on a raspberry red background. Corland was involved in the slave trade there, along with gold, ivory, pepper, oil, and other things. Jacob also employed local Africans in his colony. Although the practicality of the number of colonists he had in his service, rather than altruism and desire to give opportunities to the locals, probably drove this. In 1654, Jacob launched what author Edgar Anderson calls the first regular Coronian colony on Tobago. Without the manpower to do it all themselves, they had needed a new plan. 
First, Jacob sent 124 soldiers, as well as about two dozen officers, from Courland. Along with that, he didn't send his Latvian subjects. Instead, he sent eight Dutch families of colonists. This was, as Jacobson Lamanis so wonderfully puts it, a franchise colony. They established themselves on the northern shore of the island, and the soldiers were more than a third of their population. Another 120 soldiers were sent two years later. The colonists had ample incentive to go, besides just professional protection. According to Edgar Anderson, in his article, The Coronians and the West Indies, the First Settlements, they, quote, received lands for private use. Even the serfs received lands and became free men. The first three years were duty-free. Afterwards, the settlers were to pay the customary dues and buy slaves from the duke. Foreigners were permitted to settle in Tobago if they were willing to acknowledge the supremacy of the Duke of Courland, unquote. So, land given to the settlers, slaves being imported. All your usual European colony in the Western Hemisphere kind of stuff. It's no wonder the local tribes continued to be a thorn in their side, despite attempts at friendly relations. The Dutch also attempted to settle Tobago on their own, but as Jacob kept supplying his colony with additional soldiers and settlers, the other Dutch, the ones who worked for Corlin, were able to survive. Jacob appointed a governor, Captain Willem Molens, and his correspondence to the Duke has survived. They prospered long enough that the names they bestowed on some places remained. Today in Tobago, there is still a Fort James, named after the Duke, and a Great Corland Bay. It was no small feat. Jacobson Lamanis writes, quote, Already by 1658, there were 25,000 inhabitants in Tobago. 700 Corlander families, totaling no more than 4,500 people. 7,000 foreigners, mainly English and Zealanders. 500 soldiers. And 13,000 slaves from Corland's only other colony in the Gambia, unquote. If the romantic thought of colonizing an untamed land grabbed you for a minute, that might wake you up. More than half the non-natives were slaves, brought from the other Corland colony, the Gambia. But it is worth noting that some of the Dutch colonists found it remarkable that, quote, even the Corlander peasants and native Kalinos servants could each gain a sizable property of 30 morgans, which was equivalent to 25.5 hectares, unquote. This was the three-year duty-free stuff we talked about earlier. And it's noteworthy that not only could lowly peasants, peasants, get land, but even some of the native Caribs that lived on the island and cooperated with the Europeans. Still, while it may have been slightly forward-thinking for the time, a bunch of people were brought there in chains, so let's not get too excited about Jacob's enlightened thinking. It was, however, certainly unusual, perhaps part of the general Corlander policy to promote peace with the natives, you know, because they were totally outnumbered by them. Foreign policy was important to Duke Jacob, not just in the form of colonization, but in the form of not getting squished by his giant neighbors. Corland began a policy of neutrality in 1625, and Jacob continued that policy, working to reconcile conflict between Sweden and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. He was able to keep them from fighting for some time, but eventually war did break out. In 1654, Russia and Poland got into it. Sweden couldn't stay out of the conflict, and soon all three were fighting. 
Unfortunately for Courland, although it was technically part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it was located right at the borders of the three powers. Despite its neutrality, and guarantees by all parties to respect it, by the late 1650s, that neutrality was violated, first by Sweden. King Charles Gustav X claimed that Jacob was playing favorites, not being neutral, but favoring the Commonwealth. The Swedes marched in, faced little resistance, and took the capital of Mittau, now called Jalgava. The Duke and his family were also taken, and remained in captivity, first in Riga, then in northern Estonia, for over a year. A surviving letter from the Duke begs for his release, and his supporters, mostly electors from the Holy Roman Empire, including the Emperor himself, asked the Swedish king to set Duke Jacob free. Meanwhile, while Jacob was in the clutches of the Swedes and the Corlanders were a bit preoccupied because Corland was actually occupied, the Dutch swooped in and took the Corland colonies on the Gambia. The Corland envoy to the Dutch West India Company agreed to uh, let them watch over the colonies until the Duke was free again. Yeah, that's it. The Corland commander, who was perhaps surprisingly actually born in Corland, did try to resist the Dutch occupation at first. But the Dutch convinced the soldiers to surrender by explaining that since Duke Jacob was in prison, they weren't going to get paid. This seems to have done the trick. Something similar happened in Tobago, and the colony there was lost to the Dutch. The Corlander colonists who were really from Corland were returned to Europe. It wasn't until after the death of King Charles in 1660 that the Swedish troops finally left Courland, and Jacob was able to return home. Upon doing so, he spoke with the Dutch West India Company, who actually agreed upon returning the forts in the Gambia that they had been keeping safe for him. This lasted for all of a year when the English came in and were able to grab the forts. This should tell you something about the efficacy of the fortifications, but that's not the point here. Actually, the English sailed an entire squadron into the river and probably were just able to overwhelm the Corland defenders. The colony on Tobago, however, wasn't just handed back over. The Dutch that were living there had asserted their independence. Jacob, though, was not finished. He negotiated with the English and in 1664 got a concession from them. He gave up Corland's claim on the Gambia, forts which England had already taken by force from him, and in exchange, he got King Charles II to again recognize Cattler's claims on Tobago. This was nice, but the Dutch still, you know, held the fortresses on the island, but it did give him some legal claim to it. In the 1660s, the English and the Dutch went to war, and an English group out of Jamaica drove them off of Tobago. The Dutch then retook it, but not before somehow the French captured the fort. Yeah, I don't know. In the 1670s, more English colonials captured the fort. All the while, natives from around the region would harass and at times drive off the colonists. Corland itself had been devastated by the war, but Jacob remained a well-respected and important part of the leadership of Europe. He had supported the Stuarts in the civil wars, and King Charles II remained an ally. He had good relations with France, and despite the issues in Tobago, with the Dutch Republic. In 1672, France invaded the Dutch Republic, completely overwhelming it. They were only pushed back when the Dutch began flooding their own country. This should come as no surprise to anybody who listened to season four. Jacob was involved in the war, 
sending his son Frederick Casimir Kettler in a regiment to the northeastern Netherlands. There, they helped push the invading troops from Munster back, solidifying the safety of Groningen and the northeastern Netherlands. Not done with his dreams of mercantilism, Jacob saw yet another opportunity to colonize, you guessed it, Tobago. This is the whole built a castle, it fell into the swamp, built another castle, it burned down and fell into the swamp, built a third castle, it fell into the swamp. Anyway, he sent another expedition or two in the 1680s, more than 40 years after he first started trying, but these also failed. Soon after this, it seems that Tobago was left to its own devices, thanks to the fierce resistance of the indigenous population and the neighboring islanders, which, like, good for them. Eventually, they did fall under real colonial control of the British, but not for another 80 years or so. Kettler was a hustler, though, and throughout this time, after he regained his duchy, he was concerned with more than just colonies. He continued to build up the manufacturing of his land, paper and textiles, glassworks and ironworks, shipbuilding and refineries, whatever he could do. Despite the invasion and devastation of his duchy, the loss of his colonies, and the relative weakness of his duchy being surrounded by three major powers of the day, Jacob had turned Courland into something much more than just another duchy of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In 1682, the 71-year-old Jacob Kettler died, the leader of something, if not unique, at least incredibly rare in Europe at the time. When he died, Courland was still attempting to eke out a trading hub in the New World, and it was an important economic player, not just in the Baltics, but beyond. Upon Jacob's death, his son Frederick Casimir became duke. Frederick Casimir ruled for almost 16 years, and he had been left with a full treasury, strong relations with the major powers of Europe, and a successful duchy used to punching above its weight. But his lavish spending, his inability to fill his father's big shoes, and quite frankly reduced production and trade, meant Corlin's golden age was behind it. Despite the hits it had taken over the years, Corlin wasn't in terrible shape, but it needed another visionary leader. One wasn't enough. Without a second, it wasn't able to follow the path of its sister state, Ducal Prussia. While both had a fractured and fading Poland on the border, the much larger Prussia had the advantage of having a fractured and fading Holy Roman Empire in the other direction. Corland, on the other hand, had a united and rising Russia in one direction and a retrenched and powerful Sweden in another. It became more of a standard duchy of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth rather than a powerful semi-independent state. It eventually fell under Russian influence before, in the Third Partition of Poland in 1795, it became part of the Russian Empire, just before the death of Catherine the Great. Courland was a small duchy formed out of a little territory at the intersection of three major powers. The geography of the place always limited what it could really achieve, unlike its close relative Prussia. Even so, when Jacob took over, he turned it into something more than just a march of Poland. It was relevant in European affairs in the middle of the 17th century, and it was prosperous. Of course, there was nothing admirable about the colonialism in itself, but there was certainly something remarkable about this tiny duchy trying to muscle its way into the mercantilist and colonialist systems that the great powers of Europe were profiting from at the time. 
As the Allgemeine Deutsche Biography says, quote, through his hard work and enterprise, he brought about a previously and after unheard of prosperity in Courland, which seemed to determine the small country to an independent role for the future, unquote. It didn't work out that way for Corland, though, but not for lack of anything that Jacob had done. He was a creative and energetic ruler. One can't help but wonder what someone like Jacob could have done if given control of one of the major powers at the time. As it was, he was able to make a name for himself, and for Corland, even if it is almost forgotten today. Well, that's it for Season 7. I really do hope you enjoyed it. I can't promise when Season 8 will come. I wasn't sure that Season 7 would start on time, and then there was this whole pandemic thing that gave me time to write. I'll do what I always do in the second half of the year, try to write up most of the next season before starting to record, and I do have some ideas of people to profile. But I'm not going to promise a January return this time. Not when we're allowed out of the house again now. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>